You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Joanna said, we're beginning a a three-part message series uh, today called Not What You Would Expect. Now, I think we'd all agree, especially in light of uh, this past year, that uh, life is full of surprises. When I was a kid, I loved surprises, but I have a very different opinion about surprises now as an adult. And that's because as a kid, I, had, I didn't really have any plans, and most of the surprises that occurred for me growing up were pretty fun surprises. But as an adult, now I do have a lot of plans, and almost all of the surprises I can think of, I would put in the not, not, not fun category. So I would prefer for life to go the way I planned with no surprises, but God seems very committed to the element of surprise. And I think the reason that life is often not what we expect is because it turns out that God is often not who we expect. The unexpected is a chance for us to learn. Whenever surprises occur, uh, we can either get upset about that or we can lean in because it's an opportunity for God to teach us something about himself and usually something about ourselves. Here's what God says about how different he is, how unexpected he is. In the book of Isaiah 55, Verses 8 through 9, we read this. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God first states the obvious in this statement. He says, we are very different, you and I. We're not the same. He doesn't think like we do. He doesn't act like we do. He doesn't do what we would do. But he goes on to describe this difference and says that this difference is not just a slight difference. It's not the kind of difference that exists, say, between any of us. God is is not our peer who just simply is different and has a different opinion and a different way of doing things. No, he says his thoughts and his ways are actually higher than our ways. They're not just different. They're different and they're higher. But they're not just a little bit higher than our ways. They are like the distance between the earth and the end of the universe. They are as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is that? Well, that number keeps changing. You do your own research on the size of the universe, and you will discover that the previous numbers keep getting replaced by larger numbers because we keep learning more and we keep seeing more of the universe. In fact, the number that you can look up now will say next to it, the known universe. That implies there's an unknown part of the universe because we keep discovering that it's bigger than we thought it was. So 2,700 years ago, God gave the prophet Isaiah in these verses a measurement of difference between his thoughts and our thoughts and his ways and our ways. He gave them a measurement that we still can't quantify. We still can't put a number to it. The point, I think, is pretty clear. God is saying, this is not a ladder that you're going to be able to climb, climb to the top of. You're, you will not be able to see from the top rung of this ladder the way I see from the top rung of this ladder. You're not going to get to the top of this one. We will always be under God's thinking. Now, we can and we must grow in our thinking, but there will always be a need for us to submit and surrender to God's thoughts and God's ways. Even if we don't understand them, and here's the tougher part, even if we don't agree with them. Now, the other option, of course, is to get off of 
the ladder of God's thoughts and to climb our own thought ladder. Now, if you do that, that's, that's a common move. If you decide to do that, you will understand over time less because, of course, you won't have the advantage of learning from God and from His thoughts and His ways. But, of course, the advantage is you will get to the climb to the top of your own thought ladder and view your life and the world from your perspective. Now, how do you know which thought ladder you are currently on? Well, one of the ways you can tell is by how you respond whenever you encounter a thought in the Bible that is not what you expected, that is not how you think. If at that moment you say things like, well, I just don't believe in a God that would do that, or my God would never say that. You see, my God implies he's under you. You're the one forming the ideas of what he can and cannot do. My God would never say that, or I, I just don't agree with that. Well, those are all indications that you're on your own thought ladder. You're not on God's thought ladder. But if at the point of surprise, of the unexpected, of shock, you conclude that it's your thinking that needs to change and not God's, then you are, in fact, on God's thought ladder. He is higher than your thoughts. Now, in this series, we're going to look at three of the surprising pages in the Bible when God said or did the unexpected. Now, there are many more than three of these pages, but I have just chosen three of the ones that I think have surprised me most, and therefore I have learned the most from. Today, we're going to look at the first unexpected page in the Bible, and that's when God made it clear that our safety is not his top priority. Now, that's surprising to us, because, of course, safety is definitely our top priority. I mean, you can't exist as a company now these days unless you make this statement here. Now, of course, when we read these kinds of statements from companies, we know that profit is actually their top priority. <laughs> but it, we understand, too, that if they ignore safety, then they're not going to make any profit. So we get used to this. And, of course, if there was any, ever any doubt about the priority of safety, this last year with COVID has made it clear about the lengths that we will go to to save lives. Now... For years to come, there will be studies and there will be debates about the lengths that we went to and the, the measures that were taken to protect us from this virus and whether they were in fact effective or not effective. I'll just let those studies and those debates rage on for years to come. We'll leave that be. But I don't think anyone would debate the horror of death and the importance of saving lives and therefore the importance of making people safer. And that's how we think. And it really seems logical. So in light of how we think, now listen to these shocking verses. Brace yourself. Here they come. Ezekiel 24, verses 15 through 18. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says. And this is what he said. This is what God said to Ezekiel. Son of man, with one blow, I'm about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened, your sandals on your feet. Do not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary food of mourners. So I spoke to the people in the morning. He told the people what God had said in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. Ezekiel was one of the prophets to God to the people of Israel during their decline, their demise as a nation. 
And for hundreds of years before this event took place, God had warned them, the people of Israel, through many prophets. Ezekiel was the most recent one. He'd warned them to turn back to him. But they had ignored the warnings of the prophets. Nothing had happened. And then this happens. I still remember the double take I did when I first read this. I had to go back and read it again several times. Did I, did I read this right? Did God really take this man's wife and then tell him not to cry about it? I mean, honestly, at first, I kind of looked around hoping that no one else had read this. I was hoping that no, none of you would find this in the Bible because it sure doesn't make God look very good. And for a brief moment, I was actually glad that not many people take the Bible that seriously, and therefore, very few are going to wander into the depths of Ezekiel and uncover this set of verses. And I thought, you know, I'd never heard anyone speak on these verses, and I immediately understood why. I mean, my plan was, yeah, I'm not going to talk on this. <laughs> Clearly, the ideas in my head are different from what's in God's mind, because I wouldn't do this. And I don't think you would do this. God seems to think very differently about human death and our emotion than we think. So again, at the point of shock, at, of surprise, of the unexpected in the Bible and in life, we have two options. Option number one is we can decide there, there must be something wrong with God. God clearly is evil. And it appears that he's willing to use us for his sadistic purposes. That's a conclusion many people have come to. The other option is this. There must be something wrong with my thinking. I mean, there's only two options. There's something wrong with God's thinking, or there's something wrong with my thinking. My view of death must be off somehow. Now, for me personally, and you'll have to make your own decision on this, I've decided that when I'm reading the Bible and when God and I disagree on a matter, that there must be something wrong with my thinking. I've decided to get on God's thought ladder. So I began to look more closely at this shocking death to see what is wrong with how I think about death and emotions. And I came to two conclusions that I want to share with you this morning. Conclusion number one, according to God, death is not the worst. Death is not the worst. Now, that's surprising, right? right? I mean, my thought is, really? seems like death is the worst. I think there's nothing worth, worth, worse than death. But God says death is not the worst thing that can happen to an individual. When my son was young, we went on a fishing trip with my two brothers and their sons. One day after a morning of fishing, we headed back to the dock for lunch. At some point, my brother Kim and I noticed that our two boats were neck and neck to each other. Here's a picture of my brother Kim in the back of the boat. This is on that fishing trip. And um, we were heading back to the dock, and we kind of looked at each other. We eyed each other, and we realized we were lined up together. And of course, being brothers, the situation demanded a race. <laughs> now, you can see the size of the motors that we had on those boats. So it's a five-horsepower motor, so race is loosely defined. It was a, a race of precision, not a race of speed. It was all about angles. So he took the inside track to the dock, and I took the outside track. 
and we wound up our five horsepower motors as high as they would go. And uh, we were making progress, and I was actually winning. And all of a sudden, I heard this loud, scraping, screeching sound, and I looked back, and I saw my brother's boat come to an absolute and complete sudden stop. And all I could see was his two legs flip straight up in the air. He stayed in the boat, but he, uh, he lost his balance for sure. What had happened is he'd hit a submerged rock. I mean, the rock was only about that far into the water. Couldn't be seen. So I circled back around, and we couldn't get that boat off that rock. I mean, he had wedged it on that rock. Finally, with a lot of oars and pushing, we were able to get that boat off the rock and able to return for lunch. I don't think I'll ever forget the shock of seeing my brother Kim hit that rock. But a few years, just a couple of years after that, I saw this same brother, my brother Kim, hit another rock, and it's the one that we all fear the most, and that is the rock of death. In just 10 short months, his 14-year-old son went from the picture of health to the painful death of cancer. And that death upended their world like nothing else can. Now, I'll just be honest, none of us were prepared for this. I mean, how do you prepare for this kind of shock? When 2012 began, no one saw this submerged rock coming in our future. But suddenly and violently, the rock of death put a screeching halt to life. There just is no bracing for death. I mean, we know it's coming. But even if you have time to prepare for it, it still will just completely knock you off your feet. There's no avoiding it, but it, it's just impossible to prepare for. I mean, I can't think of anything worse than a parent having to bury their child. And I saw this firsthand. My brother and his wife sold their house that was full of the memories of Jordan because they just couldn't go back to it. They moved. For a full year while they were fighting the cancer, moving from hospital, hospital, they weren't able to work, either of them, for that full year, and it just upended their financial world, too. So that death, for me, is the closest death that I've experienced in our family. So I can't fathom how hard it would be to lose my wife, like Ezekiel did. We don't know how long Ezekiel was married to his wife. I've been married to my wife, Rebecca, for 36 years. And life, I mean, <laughs> it would be so hard without her. It says God took away the delight of Ezekiel's eyes. She was the love of his life. She was a source of great delight to him. And he only got eight hours to say goodbye to her. So the question you have to ask is, why did God do this? And the answer, as you read on, is to deliver a message deep into the heart of the people of Israel. The very next verse says this in verse 19. Then, so right after the verses I read, it says, Then the people asked me, 
would you tell us what these things have to do with us? This is the first indication that anyone had ever listened to anything Ezekiel had said. See, for decades, Ezekiel had been speaking God's word to these people, and none of them, we have no record of any of them leaning in and saying, so what does this have to do with us? How should we change? What, what does God want us to know? There had been no impact at all. But all of a sudden now, because of the death of his wife, people were asking, what does your wife's death have to do with us? It got people thinking about their future. Suddenly, they were ready to listen to what God had been saying for years. I mean, death has this kind of impact on all of us. I mean, there's nothing like the death of someone we know to get us to think seriously about life, at least for a while. Suddenly, everything that we've been thinking about fades into the background in the face of this death, and for at least a moment, we see our life with great clarity. What we see is that our time here is short and therefore very important. And we also see that our time here is not about any of the stuff that we acquire because in those moments, it just doesn't matter. And in those moments, we set aside the small thoughts that we tend to fill our minds with and we ponder the big questions the God-sized questions, the who is God questions and what happens after I die questions and who should I be questions and how should I live questions. The shocking experience of death is often God's invitation to live a different kind of life now. But here's the question. Is a death worth it? just to get people to reflect on their lives for a while. Is it worth it? God seems to think so. Why? God is of the opinion. This is his thought ladder. He's of the opinion that a stubborn heart towards him is worse than death itself. Because that decision to turn your back away from God, that decision not only affects this life, that decision stands in the life to come which is a lot longer than this life. You see, I expect God to make it his top priority to be fighting the causes of physical death, like disease and war. But he thinks that it's more important to fight the causes of eternal death, like arrogance and hard-heartedness and closed ears. So in Ezekiel 24, 24, just a few verses later, we read this. God says, Ezekiel will be assigned to you. You will do just as he has done. When this happens, you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. What he's saying is Ezekiel is, is a sign for all of you. Death is a sign on the road of life that tells us what's coming. Like a freeway sign. If you're heading to San Diego, you'll see a sign that says San Diego and how many miles away it is. Whenever you encounter the death of someone close to you, it's a sign on the road of your life saying, 
this is where you're going to. There's no mile marker on it, but the words are there. Death is also in your future. Ezekiel will be a sign for you. You will do just as he has done. This will happen to you. And when it happens, then you will know. What will you know in that moment? That I am the sovereign Lord. God says, in that moment, there'll be no doubt about who I am and that I rule everything. The problem is, it'll be too late to do anything about it. So God's desire is for us to come to know this before we arrive at that destination. That's God's desire, that people would come to know him now as their sovereign Lord. God knows that this is a matter of life and death, eternal life and eternal death. But we think that things like cancer and heart disease are the real killers that stalk us. God knows that not being made right with him through Jesus Christ is the real killer because that's the eternal killer. So what's at stake every day is not your life, it's not my life. And therefore, safety, as important as it is, is not the biggest thing. What's at stake every day is not our lives. That's already been lost. We're already going to die. The only question left is what date will be put next to our death. So what's at stake each day is eternal life. And that turns on the condition of our hearts towards God. Everything else is secondary to that. So every day we read the news and we see the tragedy of human suffering and death. But we don't see this. We don't see the tragedy of eternal death. And so it doesn't occur to us that the greatest tragedy of all is for people to not know God. I mean, what if? I don't know, but what if COVID turns out to be one of the greatest opportunities in our lifetime for people to see what really matters most and to consider eternity? Well, then that might just turn out to be one of the greatest gifts we've ever received in this world. Because it's when we encounter death that God speaks most loudly about living this life for the one to come. So to us, physical death is the absolute worst thing that can happen. But God knows actually eternal death is the worst. That's what he thinks. The second lesson I learned in this unexpected set of verses is that emotions are not first. So death is not the worst. And emotions are not first. That's surprising to us. Ezekiel was given clear instruction about how to respond to his wife's death emotionally. So let me read again the two verses in the middle of this. Ezekiel 24, 16 through 17. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover the lower part of your face or eat the customary food of mourners. What is going on here? It's bad enough that God takes this man's wife, but then he basically says, I don't want you crying about it. 
Why would God do this? Mourning, especially when you face death, is normal. Unlike our culture, the cultures of the Middle East understand how healthy mourning is, and so they actually have carved out rituals and time for people to mourn. We tend to not really know what to do or know if it's okay or not, but they were clear. They had things that they wore. They had things that they did. They were very open about the grief of death in this culture. So people, of course, are already stunned by the fact that Ezekiel had predicted his wife's own death, which means God actually said this. But now, as they observe Ezekiel, not only is that surprising, Ezekiel isn't doing the customary mourning stuff. He's not wailing. He's not crying. He's not wearing the the mourning clothes that would let everyone know that he's just encountered death. Why? You see, a lack of mourning at this point and in this culture would increase the volume of the message that God was delivering through this event. You see what that means? Ezekiel's emotions were not God's top concern. But of course they are to us. I mean, I think that my emotions should be moved to the front of the line. That's what emotions demand. They demand immediate attention. The moment we feel bad or sad or mad, we think that God should come running to our aid and help us feel better, and we think everybody should begin to orbit around us because we're sad or we're mad. That's what emotions do. They demand attention. But God seems to disagree. Now, let me be clear. He did not tell Ezekiel to not feel anything. That that would have been impossible. He's just saying, don't do the customary mourning stuff. He knows this is going to be devastating emotionally to Ezekiel. So he tells Ezekiel, you groan quietly. I mean, you're going to groan. But but don't do this publicly. Don't do the customary mourning things. Groan quietly. God is not opposed to emotion. Of course not. He's the one who created us with the capacity to feel. Emotions are very important. But in this moment, something more important than Ezekiel's emotions was in play. If you're a parent, you've experienced what this is like. When my daughter was 15 months old, she fell and opened up a deep cut in her forehead. So we had to take her to the hospital and get that stitched. And I'll never forget the horror of getting that wound stitched. She was only 15 months old, so they had to put her on this board and strap her in with her arms to her side, and they went to work, and she screamed. That was bad enough. What was worse is when she looked up at me with that look of shock in her face, like, do something. I thought, <laughs> I thought you loved me. I mean, she didn't say those words. She's 15 months old, but man, she said that in her eyes. And I mean, tears were just like, I, I can't. But she didn't understand. As hard as it was for me to watch and to know that she didn't understand why I didn't step in and stop the pain, I knew that something more important was going on in that moment than her emotions. 
I knew that this pain would come and go. I knew that her tears would dry. But if the wound was not closed properly, the consequences of that would linger longer than the emotions that she was feeling right now. And it's the same with God. It's not that God doesn't care about our pain. It's just that over and over again, he knows that something more important is in play than our emotions. And so there's moments in life when we experience pain and we look up to the heavens, like my daughter looked up to me, and we, with tears running down our face, say, why? And heaven is silent. And we don't know why. But there's a reason. And so if your primary goal in life is to feel good, you're going to end up mad at God. Because it is not his big goal. In the last sentence of this shocking chapter, God tells us again what his top concern is. Here's what he says in verse 27 of this chapter. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. This exact phrase is used 53 times in the book of Ezekiel. And it's used 68 times in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Over and over again, God takes an event, something that's happened, and he says as a result of this, more and more people are going to know that I am the Lord. God is making it clear through Ezekiel that there's nothing more important than people coming to know who he is. There's just nothing more important than that. Nothing more important for you, for me, for anyone we love, for anyone in this community. Nothing more important than that. More important than my life. More important than my emotions are people coming to know that God is the Lord. So let's apply this. I sure hope that God doesn't decide that something like this needs to happen to me. And I sure hope it doesn't happen to you. But let's just look at the future. What's going to happen in the future? I don't know, obviously. In light of the tumultuous year we've gone through, there's a lot of concern that things are just going to get worse and worse. I don't know if that's true. Of course, nobody knows. But, but let's just think for a while. What if it does get worse? I mean, really gets worse. What should we do? We who have come to know that God is the Lord, what should we do if things get really worse? We who have come to the conclusion that this world is short and that eternity matters, how should we act and respond in a moment of loss? Should we panic? Should we get angry as we suffer loss? That'd be reasonable. But you see, we know better than to think that this is the point. We know better if we know that God is the sovereign Lord. So if things do get worse, it's going to affect more and more of us. Tragic news will no longer be what we see on TV and read about. It will increasingly be what we experience and what people we know experience. Again, I don't know if this is going to happen. I'm just saying, if you look at history, we've lived a pretty 
safe life. I hope it hangs, but I don't know if it will. And if our life becomes less safe and we face the increase in personal pain, the people around us are going to be watching. And if we lose it and we give in to panic or rage, they will turn away because that's understandable. But if we walk through the pain with our eyes fixed on Jesus, more people than ever before might just turn to us and say what they said to Ezekiel, would you please tell us what these things have to do with us? You see, we tend to think we don't really have to pay much of a price to be a messenger of God to the people he's put in our lives. You know, the biggest price we have to pay is just to muster up the courage to say something, and that's a, that's, that takes courage. But you see, the words about God are so important that the delivery of them sometimes has to be costly. God wants volume, and volume also mean, often means personal pain. But there's just nothing more important than people knowing God. More than our emotions and more than this life. Our pain is temporary. But their eternity, like ours, is going to go on forever. I really, really hope that things get better for us. I, I hope that this turns out to be the safest, safest and happiest year of our lives. But I wouldn't count on it. I wouldn't set your hope on that. It's okay to pray that. I pray that. I pray for God's protection for those I love all the time. But I know it's not guaranteed. Because God is sovereign, which means he's in charge, and he's made it very clear to us that our safety is not his top priority, that eternity and getting people ready for eternity is his top priority. Let's pray. Father, this is, this is really heavy. And I know in just a few hours we'll be off to lunch. Maybe the marine layer will have thinned and the sun will come out and it'll be easy for us just to get back on whatever way we're living life now. But God, I pray that you would appropriately haunt us with this shocking truth that our time here is short, that we're all on this road that leads to death. And so in the moments when you give us the opportunity to say something, and even if it means that we must be in tremendous pain for the volume to be there, help us to do what Ezekiel did and see what's most important. Father, we pray for those around us who, as best we can tell, do not know you. Oh, God, we pray that you would open up their eyes and that you would go to whatever links must be gone to to save them from eternity without you. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. 
Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.